I want to welcome Agile XRM to the podcast. I've known the people at Agile XRM for the past 12 years. I've seen how their business process management tool can add massive value to complex organizational processes in sectors such as finance and government. If you have complex processes or a need for dialogues on the Power Platform or Dynamics 365, take a look at how this BPM tool can add value. You can find them at agilexrm.com or check out the show notes for more details. Hi everyone and welcome to the Dynamics 365 Practice Show. I'm going to go a little off script today with my guest Donna Sakar. She is the chief ninja cat for the Microsoft Insider program and has grown a community of over 16 and a half million people. It is amazing. You will love her 10 commandments of building community. Absolutely amazing. Her story is intriguing. I highly recommend you listen to this podcast and take as many notes as I did. I've never taken as many as I did on the show. But before we get underway, I just want to talk to you about this ISV I'm working with. You've heard it before. It's MapTasker. And, you know, one of the things about MapTasker is they've created this app, if you like, that makes dynamics simple for two distinct groups of people, for salespeople and for field engineers. So if you've got salespeople or field engineers in your team, I highly recommend you check out MapTasker and see why so many companies are starting to engage with this technology and really empower their field engineers and sales team. For full show notes for this show, please go to nz365guide.com forward slash 105. Now, let's get on with the show. Hey Donna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So it's been great finally getting to this point. I mean, you're recommended to come on the show about eight, nine months ago by one of my guests at that point. And I've, you know, I've started researching into your background and because I sit kind of in business apps and not deep in the Microsoft, you know, desktop experience of stuff, I didn't realize how Mm -hmm. famous you are. I wouldn't say I'm particularly famous. I would say I cause a lot of trouble, so I might be known. You're very well known and you've done a heck of a lot in in what I've researched for the whole insider program with Microsoft. Mm -hmm. It's it's quite the global movement because Mm. the folks in the insider program are just the most passionate, amazing human fans of the Microsoft platform all up. Wow, it's so good. And I, I really want to unpack, you know, how do you create mm-hmm. global community and, and a lot of the efforts you've done in that space. But before we go there, yeah, tell us a bit about you. Who are you? And, you know, how did you come into this world? And what do you kind of yeah. do? Okay. I am Donna Sarkar. I am from Detroit, Michigan in the US. Uh-huh. And when I was graduating high school, my dad and I used to read the Wall Street Journal and uh-huh. realized that, wow, Instead of joining a company and working your way up for 30 years, uh-huh. you can actually just start a company of your own when you're quite young if you use technology to do it. You don't need to inherit. You don't need to play with nepotism. You don't need to play organizational politics. You can start your own. There's so many young people back in the day who are starting companies. And both of us said, I could do that. So (laughs) I come from a lower income background. So I didn't have the option of going to school for, you know, 8, 10, 12, 13 years. 
So I said, I want to do a four-year degree in computer science and then learn the skills needed so I can start my own business someday. So I studied computer science. It was a total struggle because I'd never taken computer science before. And I had one of my first learning lessons, which is you're going to be bad at something if you've never done it before. That is normal. So I struggled through computer science, but it became really real to me when I got my first internship at a company called Autodesk, who makes AutoCAD, the uh-huh. 3D modeling software. Yep, I know it. And my, I had a really interesting task, which is create a, a sample AutoCAD app that's uh-huh. online so people can try it out and see if AutoCAD really fits their needs. Uh-huh. And that was a perfect job for me because I had to learn the product, but I also had to translate it into something that could be approachable by people who had no idea what 3D modeling was and work on something brand new. So this was wonderful introductory into what computer science really was and all the power behind it. It was really, really cool to watch so many customers, even after I'd finished my internship, gone back to college, see so many customers in like architecture and people who do interior design use AutoCAD and use my tool to try it out before they bought wow. it. It was amazing. It was so amazing. Then I realized like, wow, I I can figure this computer science stuff out because there's so much power. Wow, that's so good. Did CS. Then I got a job offer for this company called Siebel Systems, who did CRM software here on the West Coast. They had an office in Bellevue, Washington, this like mysterious land. (laughs) So I moved here. I was a sync engine developer, so I owned the sync engine between their mobile client where salespeople ran around to companies, put in orders for things and sunk up to the main database. Uh uh And I owned that engine and this was where I got my first customer engagement experience and I was sent on a business trip to a city in Budapest to figure out what was going on with one of our customers, British American Tobacco. And I got to work with the salespeople to debug issues. And I absolutely fell in love with working side by side with customers to understand their issues and fixing their problems. So I realized the power of actually owning code while engaging with customers because you can actually solve problems. You don't need to go through hoops and convincing others or stakeholders, all of this, you just fix the customer's problem when you own the code. So I vowed that I would always have a job where I had direct customer engagement, where I own the code. Nice. So that was, those are my origin stories. And I've been doing the exact same thing for the last 17 years. 17 years. 17 years. I know. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. To digress just slightly, Budapest, did you Mm -hmm. love Budapest? I love Budapest, and I'm going to be going back actually this year in September for a conference talking about digital inclusion. Uh Wow, it's such, man, I love the city as well. Just, yeah, can't get enough of it. So digital inclusion, so tell, tell me the angle of the conference. So it's going to be, from what I understand, focused on how can we get governments and educational institutions to realize that the way to make digital inclusion a thing, which is make sure everybody in the world has the same access to technology, is really in, there's really four parts to it. And I think people over-index on one of the four. So the way I think about it is in four parts. One, you need electricity, because without electricity, you're sitting around in the dark, having internet with no electricity is less useful. So one, you need electricity. So energy is a big focus. Second is actual internet connectivity. So what does the broadband plan look like for your country or region? Three is learning content. So once you have broadband, what is the learning content that the people in your country, whether they're young people like students or whether they're people in jobs that 
may not be so relevant for the next decade. Where is that localized regional learning content for your people? We as Microsoft create lots and lots of learning content. And we also have our Airband initiative that talks about how do you create uh, broadband for the global audience? How do you create broadband for 7 billion people? But we can't create regional content for every single city and locale in the world because we just don't have the expertise. Mm -hmm. So it really is up to the local government and educational institutions to take what companies have created and translate it and localize it for their neighborhood, their city, their country. And so those are the three parts. The fourth part is creating jobs. How can governments and educational institutions have jobs that do use these new digital skills that people learn? So I'll give you a real example. I was in Ghana last month talking to the vice president of Ghana and and a cabinet full of ministers. So minister of education, minister of communication, finance, defense, et cetera. Uh uh And I told them, look, why is it that when I came to this building to sign in to go upstairs to this office, why did I have to sign my name on a ledger, like old school leather bound ledger? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who is going to look at that again? Mm-hmm. Nobody. Why is this not just a database with some sort of a front end form that some graduate of a coding academy is manning, right? Mm-hmm. Why isn't it something that that graduate has written and they now own and they figure out a way to make this data entry easier? Much better than like some guy with a ledger, right? So it's creating jobs like that, taking jobs that should not be manual labor and turn them into an, a digital job. So I think that's what I'm going to be talking about in Budapest as well, because it really is those four parts. A lot of people start creating tech jobs without the skills, and a lot of people build up skills but have no outlet for those skills. So just to, to pull in on one point, the third point there on learning content. So so are you suggesting that they need to source, if you like, international content and then localize it or actually start producing their content directly? Ideally, they'll produce content directly. But rather than starting at zero, right, you know, everyone has a introductory to HTML thing, right? Like totally. ev- yeah, everyone yeah. make your first website. You don't need to create that from scratch. I would take like the introductory to HTML stuff from you know, any of the training sites and then localize it and then share it back. So open source it, say, hey, we've taken this introductory to HTML course from HTML.com or whatever, and I've localized it to be in Swahili, say, talking about Kenya. Uh uh And uh I've open sourced that content so anyone who speaks Swahili in the world can use it. That way they're contributing back to wherever they happen to be from, but they're building on what exists. Versus trying to figure out, okay, how do you build an HTML course from scratch, right? So I'm a huge fan of leveraging other people's work, but contributing back in a bigger way. Yeah, I like it. I like it. So, so how, did, how did this kind of journey bring you to Microsoft? So once I'd been at Siebel for a few years, I realized that they're a company that definitely deals with more enterprise people, right? They deal with database administrators, etc. And the direct customer engagement wound up being the same over and over. It was mostly with people who work in IT, which is fine uh-huh, and wonderful. Uh-huh. But I wanted a shot to work with consumers, just people on the street. Like my grandmother lives on the side of a mountain in Nepal and she runs windows in her kitchen. You know, I wanted that kind of thing. And luckily, Microsoft happened to be right here in hometown. 
So I applied for a job on a team called the Window Shell, which are all of the things you click on or tap on. It's the UI of Windows. And I was accepted to come be a software engineer on their team. So I've been here since. So how many years is it? It's 14 years as of like next week. Wow. So good. So good. So good. I know. And tell me, what are, what's been, if you like, in that 14 years, what have been some key highlights and perhaps some lowlights as well? Mm, I would say the highlights are just the sheer amount of impact we can have, right? Because I realized just recently, and I guess I should have known this, every government in the world runs on Windows. Every single last government. Yeah, that's nuts. And they all run on software that my team members and I have written over the course of the last, you know, how many ever years, 15 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. And all of Wall Street runs on Windows. And most of the Fortune 500 runs on Windows. And that's incredibly powerful because we're, we're a part of people's lives, like cars or refrigerators or whatever modern technology there is. And I think that's just amazing because the work we do actually impacts billions of people. And that is so powerful and amazing. So that's been one of the key highlights. I've seen it in so many ways, just you know, running the Insider Program, which I'll be happy to dig into. But it's been wonderful to realize that we have people in every country in the world. I can say right now that if you name me a country within half an hour, I can find you someone that we know in that country. And we can go and visit them, their business and their work and talk to them deeply about technology because I believe tech is this universal language and it brings us together. Yeah, I like it. I like it. So being a woman in tech over this time, what have you seen? What changes have you seen? What are your thoughts? I always find this topic to be kind of funny because I have never considered myself to be very different because I'm a woman in tech. I consider myself to be different because I'm a weirdo but I don't think it has more to do with the women than being weird. One thing I do appreciate a lot is diversity of experience. So when someone joins our team and they happen to be from somewhere else, whether that's you know Detroit or Mexico City or Lagos, Nigeria, they come with a different point of view. And that point of view frequently leads us to make far better choices with our technology, right? So I'll give you an example when this happened to us, about three years ago, we realized we know very little about how to build a Windows that works well in emerging markets, especially for places with where electricity is not a given, where electricity and good Wi-Fi is not a given. So we chose Lagos, Nigeria, because there's 180 million people there. They love technology. They use it all the time. But their infrastructure is not quite as reliable as it might be in Redmond, right? (laughs) So when we were there, we were just trying to do our work. I was trying to install insider builds. I was trying to have Skype calls and podcasts such as this one. And it was very challenging because we had rolling blackouts every day. The Wi-Fi was extremely slow and spotty. And just the the expense of having wireless connectivity is way Mm -hmm. higher than it is Mm -hmm. here. Mm -hmm. So we realized like, wow, having the ability to have longer battery life is extremely important. Having devices that work on cellular, like our Windows on ARM PCs, extremely important compared to always relying on Wi-Fi. The ability to have a Windows download size that's not 3 gig, but maybe it's 2 gig, extremely important. So we had these realizations only after we got on a plane and actually went and spent quite a few months, actually, in Lagos, Nigeria, off and on. 
So I think just diversity of experience and background like that really helps. I also think that one thing that people who are diverse bring to the table is an open-mindedness because we have to be, right? I can't come to the table and say, oh, everyone thinks like me because they don't. And I can't assume that. And I think that's the same for anyone who might be the minority in any given room. Yeah. So, so how do you encourage, if you like, that open-mindedness when people, let's say, don't come from a highly diverse background? In other words, a lot of people are just like us. And, and then how do you kind of, you know, because, heck, I've been working with Microsoft Tech for 20-odd years, specifically in, in Microsoft Biz Apps for the last 16. And, and one of the things that I, I come across is this idea that we know the answers and we'll tell you what you need type thing. With without enough of that kind of at the coal face, really seeing how something like you know your experience with you know connectivity, Wi-Fi, battery life, that type of thing. How do you then take that to a corporate team, and if you like, remove the scales from their eyes, if you like yeah. to see. I found that it's actually quite difficult to do without someone experiencing it themselves. Mm-hmm. And my two hacks actually for doing this are recording us when we're in that environment and recording via video and say, here we are sitting in the dark, trying to connect to Windows. We can't because we can't. So it's that story, that real time story, right? Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. how we're so moved by, you know, that short video of the starving polar bear. We're not there in the Arctic tundra, but we're seeing this polar bear starving to death, fishing through garbage cans. And we're so moved that we start donating millions of dollars to save the polar bears, right? All the advertisements in the world didn't make us spring us into action as fast as that, like one minute clip of a photographer videotaping a starving polar bear. So for me, it's video. If I can do nothing else, it's here we are sitting in the dark. We're trying to install Windows. Still here. Still not installing. Wi-Fi is not good. We need to do something now. That's one. And if people are willing, I get them on planes. I have dragged more people on planes than I'd like to confess. But I think I think field work is key. I really do. Many insiders ask me, like, Donna, you're never in Seattle. You're always somewhere else. I said, of course, because I'm building products for all of you and with all yeah, of you. Yeah, yeah. Sitting in Redmond, I get a very, very, very specific point of view, one that we all have. And I don't think we need more Redmond-centric thinking. I think we need much more global thinking. And how do people use tech all around the world? And what more should we be building? And what more should we be investing in? And what might we be over-indexing on? Because we're grossly overthinking that we know how people use tech in the world. Yeah. So good. So good. So you're talking about immersion. You know, I've done some stuff with design thinking, and I find, once again, it gives you really exposure right to the individuals using some tech. But yet, you know, it's a time-consuming process. How do you balance, if you like, that field time, which is time-consuming, against kind of like real work? And I say that in air quotes. Oh, yeah, totally. I think it's hard to balance it unless you've done it, where you realize the field work sets the prereqs for your real work to happen. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm a firm believer that you should not be building products until you've had customer interviews, until you've had customer videos, until you've done field work, because you fundamentally do not know what you're building, right? So for my team, these things are mandatory. We get on planes. There's not the one person on my team who has not gotten on a plane in the last three months. It's constant. And we go to many countries. We go to many cities. We talk face-to-face with customers all the time. 
every single one of us. And we put ourselves into uncomfortable situations because that's how we grow and that's how we build better products. Yeah, so good. So tell me about Do The Thing. Yeah, so Do The Thing is my personal manifesto as well as a global movement of people who are completely dissatisfied with the status quo. And they will be the change they seek in the world. What I don't like dealing with are people who say, here's all the stuff wrong in the world. Here's all the stuff wrong with my life. I want the world to change and to fix it. And I think that's insane because that's not going to happen. And instead, if you want something to happen, go do the thing, right? Like people say, oh, Donna, I'm tired of being in tech support and I'd like to be a software engineer. My answer, do the thing. You know, I ask them, what is first step? If, if I came to you with that, and I always turn it on them. Like, say you come to me and say, hey, Donna, I would like to become a software engineer. I'm like, cool. If I told you, hey, I want to be a software engineer, what's the first thing you'd say? You'd say, okay, figure out a technical problem you want to solve and then learn a coding language and solve it, right? Yes. I'd say, great, go do that. And then report back in two weeks. So my do the thing mantra is, I believe everyone holds the power to change in their own hands. And sometimes they don't realize how powerful they really are. And the way they realize that is by advising someone else. So whatever you advise someone else, write that down and do the thing. Because you always give others good advice. Often you're not so good at giving yourself good advice. That's so good. That's so so good. That's do the thing. I make a lot of people do the thing. On your team? Oh, just in life. If someone tells me they have a notion, like it doesn't even matter what it is. Someone told me, oh, I've always wanted to, you know, play the guitar. And I said, cool do the thing. They're like, oh yeah, ha ha ha. So next time I saw them, I'm like, did you buy your guitar? They (laughs) said, no, I didn't buy my guitar. So why didn't you buy your guitar? I just mentioned that I wanted to learn to play the guitar. And I said, that's nice, but you told me. So now you have to do it because I will make you, I will make you do it. So that's my unique, I don't want to call it a superpower. It's more of my neuroses. If someone tells me they want to do something, I will make them do it. Nice. Nice. So here's a question for you, slightly off topic. And that is, I have a 14-year-old son, and in his schooling and everything, he's very locked into, if you like, from his thinking, a traditional, well, sorry, from my thinking, a traditional career path. Uh He wants to, you know, become a lawyer, that type of thing. And for me, well, I'm just like, it's it's not STEM. It's not, you know, where I see, you know, AI going, where technology is taking us. If you like, it's almost an old world perspective, even though he's only that old. How do you encourage in students, if you like, the future possibility of careers that don't even exist? So one of the things is that it comes down to combinations of, right, where law in 20 years will not be law the way it is now. Just won't be. We won't have to dig through those 700 page books to make a brief or however long it works. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know I'm making stuff up. But I do think that coding and being able to read and write code, even basic, is going to be as necessary as being able to read and write words and do math. Yeah. So I think it's going to be the next big literacy. And those of us who don't have the literacy are going to get left behind. So I encourage everyone to learn basic coding, even if they are not going to be a software engineer. That is fine because everyone learns to read and write. Not many mm-hmm. people are authors. So just because you learn to do math doesn't mean you're a mathematician. It's just basic life skill. So I encourage everyone to learn basic coding because they will use it for random things. They're going to use it to 
you know, if their front door doesn't open because it's a face scanning door, they're going to have to debug this door, right? Their locksmith is going to be a software engineer who's going to come and debug the door. So they have to be able to speak the right language and figure out what they've tried, not tried, and look at source code. So your son who wants to be a lawyer, by learning basic coding, he doesn't need to be a software engineer, but he is going to be able to use potentially machine learning to sift through petabytes of data to make his brief for him so he can go and argue the case. So So true. It's more about how do you, how are you going to rationalize petabytes of data to do whatever job you're going to do? Doctors do the yeah. same thing. How are you yeah. going to rationalize petabytes of history of all of the people who've been diagnosed with this thing to make like a real diagnosis of a person? Yeah. Yeah. So true. So Chief Ninja Cat is a yes. title that you have. And, oh, yeah. And, you know, we've, I've got a Ninja Cat on my the top of my laptop. Love it. My one has HoloLens on it. Of um, course. But, Tell me, tell me about the Ninja Cat movement and and the community, the whole insider community. Yeah, so Ninja Cats are people who are not okay with being an observer. So a Ninja Cat, I think this might not at all be what a Ninja Cat is, but according <laughs> to my definition, fine. A Ninja Cat is not okay with things being created for them. They want to co-create. So these are people who are the tech enthusiast leader of their communities and lives. You know how everyone asks you, Mark, which laptop mm-hmm. should I get? Mm-hmm. What is mm-hmm. antivirus? Yep. What are What is customer data? What is GDPR? Everyone asks you these questions, right? And you, yeah. So Windows insiders are that person in their lives and their community and their business. They're always the person who people go to for every technical question on the planet. So these are not people who can consume tech once it's done. They're people who want to have a hand in creating it. So that is how the Windows Insider program works. We are a community of Ninja Cats, 16.5 million of us. I know, 16.5 million. That's incredible. Every country in the world. I told you I can find you a friend in half an hour. Name me the country, I can find your friend. There are 16.5 million people who have said, I raise my hand to help co-create Windows and Office and other Microsoft products because I don't want to just be handed a finished product when it's done. I want to have a hand in building the right thing for my life as well as the lives of the people around me who I advise on technology all the time. So how just logistically how it works is we opened up Windows while in deployment. So I'm a Windows engineer. I check in code on Monday. We'll release that code to the insider fast ring, which will be people who've opted into it out of the 16 Uh million, uh however, want to. They say, I want to see that code on Wednesday. And I want to try it on my machine and give you feedback on it so that you can make changes in real time versus after you've shipped. Biked it, yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's extremely real-time co-creating of software. But I am Chief Ninja Cat, Chief Troublemaker around here. And insiders are just like insanely passionate because not only do they want to have a hand in co-creating product, but they want to have a hand in co-creating how do we make a better world using technology. So I love that. It makes me insanely happy. So is that starting to flow over into the other technology areas inside Microsoft? So for example, it's been extremely successful on, mm-hmm. you know, for Windows 
Yes. Ten. What about yeah. other other are other teams, if you like, taking it on this whole concept of being able to get that feedback before something you know ultimately ships? Absolutely. So there are a lot of insider programs with Microsoft, and these are all open for pre-release feedback. So we've got Windows 10, of course, but we've got an Azure insider program. We have a Bing insider program, Xbox, of course, very that they were actually the first insider program and very huge and successful. The Edge insider program, so browsers across operating systems, right? It could be on a Mac or an Android or Windows or whatever. Skype insider program, the Dynamics insider program, and Visual Studio Code. Just to name a few, we've got more, but these are the prolific ones that we work with quite often. Yeah, but what, what I was impressed there, you can check your code in on a Monday, have a form of compiled, usable, something that somebody can, you know, interact with, play with, test, and give you feedback, you know, in a, let's say, three to five day window. I don't kind of see that flexibility across other areas, and that and that's pretty impressive because it's not like yours is a small product, it's massive. <laughs> Right. Ours is a massive product, but everyone's kind of moved to this as a service model. So that's really helped because we can update stuff every week, right? We don't have to wait for some box software to come out every three years. So we can update things every week. And all of those other products, they can too. And they take feedback at different intervals, but all of these teams are very, very hungry for feedback from real people using their products. Yeah. So true. So how do you go about building a community of 16.5 million people and keep the comms up, the yeah. engagement level year in, year out? This is not, uh, you know, this is not something you've just done in three months. This is something no. you've been doing for some time. So how do you maintain that momentum? Well, I think part of it is figuring out what are you trying to do, right? I call it, there's, there's really two parts to it. How do you build the community? And then how do you nurture the community? So in terms of building a community, you need three things. One, you need a clear mission, right? What is the mission of anyone joining this community that we can all get behind? So the mission of the Insider Program is co-create a better Windows for everyone in the world. Cool. That is the mission. We all want to do this. Second thing you need is a place for people to communicate, so we choose Twitter as the main way that we communicate with insiders, insiders communicate with us, and insiders communicate with each other. We would rather have it on Twitter than in a private forum somewhere because we, <laughs> we want it out in the wild, right? We want it to be open. We want anyone to be able to join in the conversations. And a ton of people wind up joining the Insider Program because they see all of our like insane conversation around this feature, that feature, this is new, that's new. So that's the second thing you need. And the third thing you need is a very clear next step, like a call to action. So we say we want to co-create Windows with everyone with Windows Insiders to make a better Windows for everyone in the world. The place we actually have deep conversations about this is on Twitter. The next step to do is to install the latest version of Windows in pre-release format from this link. That's the next call to action. So you always need those three things because this way people can say, oh, yeah, I buy into this mission. Okay, cool. I can communicate in this way. And yeah, I'm in to do this next call to action. But those three things have to be true for someone to join your community. Yeah. So somebody, go, you know, they buy into your mission, they engage or they get fed into your funnel, let's say via Twitter, they take the next step and install the environment. How do you then, I assume there's a level then of connection after that point where people start proactively giving you feedback. That's right. It happens instantaneously. So how the workflow goes is we review 
our test results because we'll check in code on Monday and self-host test it with like a few hundred people in the company on Tuesday. Then we'll say, okay, good to go. Good to release to insiders in the fast ring. So we released to insiders. I tweet out, hey, insiders, we're ready. The build's out. You can do check for updates and get the latest bits. Cool. Insiders go do that. And then they start sending us feedback using the feedback hub. So we have a feedback hub in Windows 10. They all Issues also trend on Twitter. And then we find out within 24 hours what the key pieces of feedback are. So we've got an agreement where we look at all of our feedback by product teams, of course, within 24 to 48 hours, just depending on how many new features are out, et cetera, et cetera. But we can catch top issues like, oh, people can't install, people can't log in. Those we catch in like within three hours. Wow, that's so good. Yeah. So once all the pieces of feedback come in, we're able to say, okay, cool. This is what's go- trending well. This is what's not trending well. Like, But the feedback is it's extremely important. Like, for example, we had 51,000 pieces of feedback across our rings in April. So 51,000 is a lot of feedback. That's a lot of feedback. And that just in one month when we weren't particularly crazy busy, that was just a month. And that's a lot of feedback across a lot of people who try things out and Mm -hmm. give us input on what they think of the stuff that we're building. That is phenomenal. So you've got 10 commandments for community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. So our 10 commandments of community are, I give this talk a lot because I think it's really important for people who work in companies or you know, otherwise who want to co-create with others to follow. So one is you need a very clear why people should invest and that why should benefit the people, not benefit you. So that is the mission, right? So for insiders, it's why would you insider? One, you get a magic crystal ball into the future so you know what's coming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Two, you're able to get like a six-month period bonus where you can make sure your household or your community or your company is prepared mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. to actually your existing apps, your existing infrastructure continue to work. So the clear why. Mm-hmm. Second is you have to co-create. So when people chime in with, hey, wouldn't it be cool if this was a thing or wouldn't it be cool if we had this program? You actually have to make it so. So you push bits out there, but you have to take the feedback and actually do something with it so that people feel heard and they feel like, oh, my input is actually being valued and appreciated. Third, you have to be the advocate of your community and celebrate their wins. So whenever one of our insiders achieves something like, hey, I got promoted, I hear this a lot. Hey, I got I got promoted or I got this new job or I was able to move and do this thing or you know, I was given this award in my community. We celebrate it. We celebrate it loudly. And I also make sure that insiders get an opportunity to be on stage, which is our fourth commandment. We have a really huge microphone here at Microsoft. And yeah. <laughs> it's my job to make sure that our insiders are always on stage with us. Right. So very rarely will you see me at a conference talking about insiders without an insider next to me. Because it should always be sharing our stage. It should be hero making them. We're in the business of hero making, you know, other people, not ourselves. Yeah, I love it. The fifth commandment is have these inside jokes and symbols. So Uh Ninja Cat is not news to anyone who's in the insider program. The big red button is not news to anyone. Whenever they see a Ninja Cat or a big red button, they know what's about to happen. They know we're about to release a build and chaos is going to spread throughout the land. So just like that, we have a gesture for when we agree on something. So whenever, instead of shaking hands like normal people, we ninja. 
right? We've everyone like gets down real low, gets your hands in the air, and we ninja when we're all agree on something. Sixth commandment is to communicate very regularly with some sort of consistency. So whether that's online or in person, like we have an agreement with insiders that we tweet every day, right? Monday, Tuesday, Sunday, Saturday, Christmas, New Year's, we tweet every day. And that's their way of knowing that we're still here, we're still paying attention, we're still deeply invested in this work. And whether it's about builds or not builds, this is how we communicate with each other. We also have an agreement that whenever we're in a city, we're going to have an insider event so we can meet people whenever, wherever we might be. So we get on a lot of planes, so we meet insiders all over the world. The seventh one is being vulnerable. So when we screw up, we confess it. We're like, hey, that build, no good. Or, hey, I'm super nervous to speak at this conference. And when we're vulnerable, as humans, insiders are vulnerable with humans. Like I've gotten told by many people like, hey, I have, you know, extreme depression and being a part of this community makes me feel like I have place in this world. Or I am terrified of public speaking and watching you go through this journey has made me realize like I can do it too. You know, so by being vulnerable, insiders are vulnerable. The eighth one is we keep growing and learning together. Like right now, we all know this journey to the cloud is a thing. Right. We're going to have to stop storing stuff locally and start putting it in the cloud. What does that mean? Let's all learn Azure together. Right. So I've tasked us all to learn Azure fundamentals. We're all going to learn it together. And we have an initiative called Insider Up, which is helping every insider improve their tech creating skills. So so helping everyone to learn coding. We're all going to do it together, whether that's Azure, whether that's AI, whether that's cybersecurity, we're going to learn it together. The ninth one is we want to build for, we want to do things for teams to support each other. So when an insider is having a tough day, it's on us to swarm them and make them feel better and pull them up and say, no, you got this. You will not quit. You're going to do it. Right. We have many insiders who are students who are like, hey, I'm really struggling with the CS degree thing. I think I'm going to quit. And we're like, don't you even think about it. Don't you dare. Your, your tribe of 16 million people are behind you. You got this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't let each other quit. We make each other do the thing. And the last one is we embrace shenanigans. Right. When you've got a community of 16 million people, you're not going to control everything. Weird stuff is going to happen. You just kind of got to embrace it and let the nonsense happen because that's how, you know, those are the best memories where those really are the best memories are not ones where you carefully organized and planned something and then did it. It was and shenanigans broke out and it was chaos throughout the land and no one knew what was going on. And it was great. So good. So those are our commandments for insidering and we follow them pretty strictly because I could tell you them off the top of my head, so you yeah, talk yeah. about them a lot. I noted down 11, so it's, that's brilliant. That's brilliant, and I just feel we could have just done the whole podcast just on these Ten Commandments. There's, there's so much there to unpack. But where's the future of the Insider Program? Where do you see it? Is it going to pivot? Is it going to change? Is it going to evolve? What, what are you thinking? Well, world domination, obviously. Well, it's going to expand, actually, because we like we like what we do. We like how we work. We like our people. And we think it's time for two things to happen. One, we want to spread the love of insiders to other products at Microsoft. Because insiders are such huge fans, not just of Windows, but of Microsoft products all up. 
we want to start giving them the ability to pre-release different kinds of things. Uh-huh. So pre-release some of the cool new Azure services, pre-release office, pre-release, you know, some of the dynamic stuff, whatever it is that they happen to be interested in, because some are interested in games, some are interested in enterprise stuff, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. totally depends on what they're interested in. So we want to start building a central pre-release portal for the company. And we'll do that under the Microsoft Insiders umbrella. So that's one. The second thing we want to do is focus on Insider Up, which is we want to say, okay, Insiders, there's a lot of new technical skills in the world that we better all learn, like basic AI. I don't know what that is. Do you know what that is? I don't know what that is. Let's all learn it together. It's a lot less scary when we do it together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Insider Up is a very important thing because if we are going to be the technical leaders of tomorrow the way we are now, we have to stay ahead of the tech. Right? It doesn't work for us to be the technical leaders of tomorrow if we're not learning to stay ahead. Uh, so uh, uh, those are the two big initiatives that we've got going on in FY20. But we also want insiders to start realizing that they actually have a lot of power to be the voice of change in their communities. So if they're hearing feedback on our products from you know, their, their dads, their kids, their moms, uh, their accountants, uh, uh, their lawyers, bring us that feedback. And help us connect with those people in your community so that we can continue to build better products for everyone in the world, not just tech enthusiasts. Yeah, I like it. I like it. One last question before we get into some quick fire. If another Microsoft product team came to you and said, what are the five things we need to get in place to kick off a program from zero? Nothing, but we need to build a community. We need to engage. We need to bring on, if you like, the next 10 million people. How... What, what would you recommend? I would recommend first hiring a set of people to run this that are deeply passionate about it, who would be in the community if they weren't running it. That is mandatory because we on my team don't consider this to be a job. It's a lifestyle that if we didn't, all of us were insiders before we took the jobs. So if we leave the jobs, we should still be insiders and we should be doing the same kind of mission. If you don't believe in the mission, do not take the job. That's the yeah, most yeah. probably the most important thing. The second one is make sure that there's a clear value to the people joining the community. Because if there's not a clear value exchange, we're asking for people's time. What is the value exchange that they get? How will their lives be better? Ours are very clear. People who insider tend to be the heroes, the tech heroes of their communities. We've been told that over and over again. I got promoted. I got this opportunity. I'm being seen as this. So it has to be a clear value. Third, you have to be okay with spending a lot of time on this. A lot. Insidering is a full-time job. It's not a day job. It's not eight hours a day. It's 24 by 7, 365 days. And if you're not willing to spend that much time nurturing a community and taking care of them, don't start the program. It's the worst thing you can do is start one and then kill it off because it's too much work. People lose so much faith in your program if you do that because people really build extremely strong relationships and bonds to Uh community members. So... Starting something and killing it off is, you know, a total, it just attacks your identity and who you are and the tribe you belong to. Wow, that is so good. Just writing that down. Don't start and kill off. Don't do it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. You don't know how how applicable this is going to be in the future. (laughs) So yeah, that that was brilliant. Okay. So (laughs) I know you've got to run. So let's just close up with some quick fire questions. Yeah. What's the one album that's always on your playlist? It's Afrobeats. Afrobeats? Afrobeats. So it's a bunch of Nigerian Ghanaian music. Yeah. It's super random, but I love it. 
Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of Deep Forest that was out an album out in the 80s, end of 80s, early 90s, which was very, you know, like that very cultural type music, which is, it went to the top of the charts. So what's your best purchase under $100? Blank journals. Blank journals. See, that's so creative. Everyone defaults to food when I ask them that question. It's a, food? The best no. Thing. Yeah. Mine is food, blank journals. wine. Nice. No, no. I do all my thinking in blank journals because if I'm connected, I'm going to be connected. So when I'm disconnected, that's when all of my best ideas happen. Nice. What's a key highlight of your life so far? It's been the opportunity to get on planes and meet people in so many places in the world. You know, everyone says travel. I actually don't like travel for vacation. I like travel for work because seeing, nice. how, seeing how people work all over the world is so fascinating. It's so cool. That's so good. Definitely. So good. Donna, who do you recommend as a guest for the podcast in the future? I recommend two people. One is Jeremiah Marble, who is I've worked with for years. He has a fascinating background where he worked on Wall Street on 9-11, and he survived the attacks on the World Trade Center. He went and joined the Peace Corps. He worked, he started several social enterprises in Cambodia and Laos, and he's been at Microsoft since. He has an amazing history. Definitely someone you should talk to. Excellent. His manifesto for life and things are so interesting. Like they're def- different than anyone you've met because they're different awesome. than anyone I've met. So I've been lucky to have him be my partner for years at this point. But I learned something new from his insight every day. Just a very interesting person to talk to. The second one is Melissa Sassi, who ran our airband program for quite some time. And now she's moved on to IBM to run their incubator startups program. Uh-huh. But she's got a deeply personal reason for why she believes in digital inclusion. And I won't tell the story. I want her to tell you. Awesome. But it's intense. And I always find the most interesting people are the ones who would be doing this work anyway, no matter where in the world they work. And Melissa and Jeremiah are definitely two people who you should talk to. So good. I'll get you to introduce me to them offline. Of course. Donna, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I have learned so much. I've never written down so many notes as I have today. (laughs) If people want to connect with you online, how can they do that? The best way is on LinkedIn. Just connect with me on LinkedIn. Twitter is very noisy and I wind up losing half my tweets because it's just sheer chaos, especially on build release days. But LinkedIn, I look at every single message. Hey, thanks for joining me again today on the Dynamics 365 show. I'm your host, business applications MVP, Mark Smith, otherwise known as the NZ365 guy. At the start, I mentioned Matt Tasker. Why don't you go to the website, maptasker.com, and check out the sales and the field engineer solutions that they have to empower your team today. Full show notes can be found at nz365guide.com forward slash 105. Bye for now.